0: Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm
1: Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey.
0: So oh, here we are back for another recording. And today we're going to talk about Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them by Gary Hamill and Michelle Zanini. I am so interested to have this conversation with the two of you about this book because this book is different than a lot of the other books that we've talked about because it takes a sort of organizational development Lens to, okay, so you've developed all of these leaders using all of these practices. You've got people who feel like they have autonomy and they know that they want to be having impact. And organizations don't always support that. And in fact, many organizations are specifically designed to suppress the innovation and leadership impact of the people who aren't at the top of a really big hierarchy this book is really about how do you take really great people and take advantage of that and so it's got more organizational development and sort of structural how do you put an organization together material than a lot of books that we've read but it also talks particularly at the end of the book about what it takes from individuals as leaders to actually lead this change. I'm sort of open for conversation that takes any of those directions. I really, really want to just hear what you guys thought of the book first, and then we'll take it from there.
2: I liked the book and you're right. This book struck me as as the next step after what we might call leadership development into, into organizational development. That's absolutely how I received it. I felt that there was a thread throughout the book. And, and I think it's mentioned explicitly a couple of times too, that you can't stop at developing leaders as individuals. It's then what do leaders do with that, with their teams and with their organizations? And it's it's sad in a way that it's it's this radical concept. I mean it shouldn't be, but it's sad that it's a radical concept that how do we make organizations as as human, as the humans that actually comprise the organization, but it speaks to how deeply ingrained some of the more, as they call it, bureaucratic behaviors are. Even even in those of us who might think, well, you know, I, I don't think like that, or I work in a more progressive or modern organization, or one that doesn't think in that way, or has maybe younger leaders or leaders who who read the books we read even in those kinds of places this stuff is really deeply ingrained to where the change you hope and expect after you have leaders that have, have done the work on themselves sometimes doesn't come to fruition because there's this organization level kind of inertia I like that I, I I liked the way it was laid out I mean I, I for me I especially love the the case studies and the stories about specific, Companies that were in there. I'm sure we're going to get to that. That really helped illustrate for me how how this can be possible, but also what
1: makes it hard. I really like this book as well, and there were some things that really struck me in terms of how it speaks to people who are saying, "I don't like being in the bureaucracy. I know the bureaucracy is not the most effective way to get the most out of people," and then helps you go past that because I think a lot of us start young and early in our careers and what we're pointed towards so much is how to work within the system, Mm -hmm. how to find our place and do the best we can within the system. And I like that this book gives permission not just to leaders, but they talk a lot about building things from the bottom up, innovation from the bottom up. of gives people permission to say there is a better way and here are some things that you at any level can try to help your organization become more of a humanocracy it kind of takes this instinct that i think a lot of people have that says bureaucracy is not the way to get the best out of people and then you think but where do i go from there and this actually says yeah we hear you And we've done a lot of research and looked into this. And here are some principles that you can, at whatever level you're at, start to put into practice and see what that does in terms of creating a more human organization. Yeah. One of the things that I really loved was... Close
0: to the end of the book, there's a paragraph that basically says people who are not at the top in bureaucracy, especially people who are not at the top in bureaucracy, give up trying to change the system from within, that the system is so oppressive that they just give up and they stop. So they stop talking about it. And in practice, if they are still talking about it, it's over drinks with their friends bitching later, Mm -hmm. (laughs) complaining later, not actually internal to the system. And then the layers of the bureaucracy, part of what the layers of the bureaucracy do is even the people who are talking about it are sort of squashed. So the people at the top, don't actually see or feel the pain of the bureaucracy and so there's not motivation to change or there's not urgency to change there's a yeah. sense that there's a sense that there could be a better way that we're not getting the most out of our people but there's not this urgent pain and when we're doing one-on-one coaching clients we know that one of the ways to increase motivation is to actually increase the awareness of the current cost of not changing yeah, because that cost of not changing is often hard to see. So when we're working with one-on-one coaching clients, one of the questions we ask is, what is it costing you not to have solved this problem? Right. And it just highlights the pain when I'm in organizations, quite often, that's the first thing that happens in organizations is you empower these leaders to speak with courage and then it starts surfacing the pain, And then the organization has to respond to the fact that the pain has actually been surfaced as it is on the surface. And if people are looking at the pain, they're going to leave unless something is happening that it accentuates the pain. So one of the things I really like about the book is that it starts with what is the cost of bureaucracy? And it actually highlights the pain. So why don't we sort of start there for a moment? What is the cost of bureaucracy as presented in this book?
1: I think there's also talk about bureaucracy as treating people as commodities. And I know that we've talked about this as well. The idea of leaders not seeing people as widgets, yeah. you know, your your people are not commodities. So yeah. the cost of bureaucracy is not actually letting people bring their best skills and their creativity, their imagination, their innovation to their work. And there was one sentence very near the beginning about the idea of humanocracy that really struck me, which was the idea of helping people maximize contribution for the sake of impact. What does that do when you shift the frame from specific outcomes and goals to looking at impact? And how do you then help people really bring everything that they can in a way that engages them? And then how does that multiply the impact of your organization?
2: Yeah, I think that there's the phrase that is put there is maximizing contribution instead of maximizing compliance, right? Yeah. And and it speaks a little bit to, you have to think about what you're rewarding in your organization because it's bureaucratic organizations, very often are rewarding compliance and, and output and these very specific outcomes. And so there really isn't any incentive to be innovative or to bring a little rebel talent to, to kind of quote from an earlier book. There's, there really isn't incentive to do that. And sometimes that kind of stuff is actually actively punished, but if not, it's at least not rewarded. And so people don't see, see the need to do that. And so I, I absolutely, I see that as a very clear cost that, because the, uh, the wrong things are being rewarded, or at least the right things are not being rewarded, that is a huge, huge missed opportunity in innovation and in talent and just the, that kind of core human creativity towards like solving big problems that you really need. I think it absolutely leads to short-term thinking over long-term impact type of thinking. And that's really costly. I, I think the problem though is that cost is often not felt in the short term, and yeah, because it's, it's this like diluted or that may not be the word delayed impact type of thing. you don't feel it right away, and so there isn't enough of a motivation to to change things because you don't you don't see that until later.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of really, really slow feedback. And so the feedback loop is very, very slow with the cost of bureaucracy. And the the gains of bureaucracy are very clear because you get the economy of scale by standardization. And so that can be very, very clear. If you're going from chaos to structure, that is easy to see. And what humanocracy is saying is saying the cost of that is... If you over-standardize, you lose learning, you lose innovation, you lose the ability for your frontline customer service to actually solve this client's problem right now, unless it's a problem you've already given them a script for. You lose that person-to-person piece. When I think that my job requires me to do things a certain way, and then I see that the problem isn't actually going to be solved by that. If I'm not incentivized for actually solving the problem, I'm incentivized to do the internal compliance. I'm not going to solve the customer problem. And so it's there's waste there. The engagement of employees, the like desire to actually be here, feeling like I am using myself in something that's having good impact is all gone. But the costs of those don't show up so fast on your PL. <laughs> they don't show up in the things that are easy to measure. It's not until we've sort of done big bureaucracy and realize, okay, now we're slow and expensive that we've got the incentive to do something different. At which time we have five or six layers of bureaucracy. So we have four or five layers of people whose livelihood is dependent on the fact that they've gotten good at being bureaucrats. And so you need to help them through that change. And the number of times I've been in a change situation where people were like, we want to do this change, but we've got all these managers we can't lay off. And it's like, Hmm. um, (laughs) so find something useful for them to do or make the hard call.
2: One of the the problems, I think, is that there are also a lot of organizations who would never self-describe or self-identify as bureaucratic, especially nowadays. I I think there's a whole group and, and type of companies that actually consider themselves not to be bureaucratic and have have moved into it in an era and a type of working where they pride themselves on their cultures and they they pride themselves on how high their employee satisfaction is you know as reported on (laughs) company surveys and things and we we have great benefits and we do great perks and we do this and that and we're super different And, and they are super different in some ways from from certain other companies but it's actually almost more dangerous to be in at one of those places because i think there's a denial on how entrenched and ingrained some of these things are because these newer companies would never like for example describe their comp- their employees excuse me as widgets right and if you said you're kind of you're kind of not looking at your people as people you're kind of looking at them as objects or widgets i mean there's going to be massive denial right no yeah. we care about our people because this, it's really insidious, actually, it's how this, really how the, re- how yeah. the bureaucracy persists. It's not this overt kind of you are a widget and I'm going to sign you a number. It's, it's in at will employment. It's in the constant knowledge that like you could be, you know, replaced at any time. It's, it's in having to justify yourself every time you need a mental health day, right? I mean, it's and these yeah. are examples, but it's in the small interactions and in the small ways you have to, you know, constantly be aligning yourself to to, to the bottom line, as it were, instead of to your own humanity, that I think further that in ways that are kind of, you can't really see, but they persist.
0: Yeah. And and I like the word insidious and I use the word insidious a lot to describe this sort of trap. And when we talked about the outward mindset, they talk about this trap is that there's this sort of in between space where you're saying you're doing all of the things for the other people in order to get them to do the thing you want them to do. And that's, that's actually an inward mindset. That's actually a form of manipulation and it's, it's insidious and it's it's emotional manipulation rather than overt
1: force, but it's yeah. just as toxic. I was just talking about that the other day, having people get to a solution that they think is theirs when the whole time you're just leading them to that solution. Exactly. And the, manip- the manipulation that can be actually articulated when someone is is mentoring someone else of saying, You know, it's just really important for them to think it's their idea. Mm -hmm. That's that's where that's that insidiousness showing up as well. Yeah. And I've heard
0: people that I've been closing describe their bosses who they're trying to figure out how to negotiate with is they're really good at their job because they manipulate people into doing the things that are actually good for them. But it's the manipulation underneath. It's like the end result. Would be good, but you've ruined the relationship in the process of getting there because of how you did it. Yeah. 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 So, cost of bureaucracy right there, like in the sort of mental health space and in the effectiveness and in what the employees bring to work. So, what do we do about it? (laughs) Because I think the thing that happens so often is that people get to that point and they realize there's something really rotten. And then they get cynical and despair because they think they've tried everything and they've done the things that people said were supposed to fix this and they haven't fixed this. And so then they go back to, we're just going to go and tell people what to do because this whole being nice about it thing doesn't work. Of course it hasn't worked because they haven't taken it all the way there. And humanocracy, I think this book gives us a way of sort of looking at how do you take it a little bit further to closer to all the way there. So I think that it's it's useful for the purpose of this discussion to actually talk about some of those things. Alyssa, one of the things that you talked about was you talked about principles. And one of the things that's very specific in the book is why principles, not an instruction manual. So maybe you want to start Alyssa with principles.
1: Yeah. The principles were making me think a little bit about this balance between structure and creativity if you are aligned, and I hesitate to use that word because there's a point in the book where they say alignment is overrated, but I think there's, <laughs> still, there's still places to use that. When you're aligned on the principles, it gives this structure within which then there is room for creativity. So the idea also that they talk about in terms of, agreeing on the what and then allowing for all sorts of creativity on the how what are the principles that we say at the base this organization runs on also gives you kind of that guidepost or that north star choose your metaphor for where you're aiming and what's important so that all the decisions then are are made with that in mind then you know everybody is in alignment and yet there's room for different ideas and opportunities for innovation within that.
2: Yeah. And I, I was struck by the discussion of what to do to fix or to not have to pay the cost of bureaucracy. I mean, to to align around you know, a North Star like that, it does require, and I picked, picked up on this from, from the case studies, it does require often a, a complete reimagining of the company I think one of the things I say is you can't just have a consultant come in and <laughs> say a couple things and and you know you do these three or four things and then it changes no it's it really is a whole scale restructuring much of the time because this stuff is so ingrained you can't just hope to say well let's have a new mission statement and then that'll be it or let's change these couple things you, you often have to make those hard calls and 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 sometimes that involves, some short-term loss in one way or another, whether that's loss to kind of actual profit or, or loss to some people or, or their egos. I mean, it's it's all very possible. I think this book does very much suggest through some of the examples that they show and the stories that they tell, that you have to do that if, if you really want that kind of big radical change and shift to take place.
0: The thing that it strikes me about the principles is... That the book talks about principles being important because the context of every single organization is so different that to just take an organizational design from another company and say yeah oh they wrote about this in their book so we're going to do this there are all sorts of reasons that that's problematic one of which is that what showed up in the book isn't what they did and, <laughs> and 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 secondly they haven't shared any of this stuff that is actually crucial for why that context meant that that was the right result for them for that time because that's all sort of proprietary information that they don't want those details getting out to their competitors, but the principles that underlie the decision-making about why we chose this, those principles to then say, okay, from that idea that say ownership, which is one of the principles that that people are creative when they actually have the ability to make an impact and they actually have the impact that they have has a cost or a benefit to them that's that feedback loop of ownership is like, I have the power and I have to live with the consequences. If that's the principle and then we go, okay, in our organization, what might ownership look like? Then you can say, okay, here's where we're starting from. Here's where there's a lack of ownership. We could play with this thing to increase ownership. Whereas we've, if we just say organization over there gave stock options, it might not actually solve our problem. In fact, the world right now is full of companies who are compensating workers with stock options, but not actually giving them any meaningful ability to impact (laughs) the value of those stock options. And so treating them as owners in that respect, isn't actually treating them as owners. Right. But if the principle is ownership, then if you start from the principle and look at your situation, you have the possibility of actually making something happen that is meaningful in that space.
2: Yeah. And I I think that would apply to any of the other principles. I mean, I think experimentation is one that stood out to me. Community is another one that stood out to me. And it's the same idea. You can't say, hey, well, this is how that company over there built community, you know, using that internal chat tool, or they have these kinds of events or whatever, and and that's going to work here, it's, you got to get at root cause. And I think it's, it it does include, Kate, what you're saying, which is, let's look at our context and and assess what would actually work here. But I think it's also, and this, this is me editorializing a little bit, but I think what I pick up on in the book is, you also have to maybe look at, well, why doesn't something like experimentation exist right now? What's the barrier to it? Really important. So, because I think that's part of the analysis to what would work here, right? Is well, why isn't it happening right now? What's in the way of it? What are those either cultural components or how are incentives structured to kind of not let this exist? And how do we dismantle some of those? That's kind of the restructuring that I was mentioning earlier around not just how can we introduce new stuff, but what has to be actively dismantled that's going to stand in the way of something like this existing. So that we don't put something in place, even one that would otherwise work, right? At at the company you're at and say, well, you know, I'm gonna put this in, but you have to address what would get in its way and get rid of that stuff too. And that's that's hard work
0: and often. It's really hard work. The one the thing that comes to mind is it feels like there's a risk of losing profitability if you make radical structure. And if you if you as a leader with structural authority have Taken on the your shoulders the weight of the bureaucratic responsibility to deliver profitability, and you've taken that on as as your role at the top of the hierarchy that like, like the buck stops here, to then give away power, which is one of the things the book says that leaders need to do. You're saying, oh, I'm I've got this responsibility, but I'm giving away my power to actually deliver, and so. For instance, one of the things I liked about the Michelin case study in Michelin, they they talked about getting volunteers to develop experiments, that they gave them time and some budgetary control over for a year to do experiments and learning. But one of the conditions of the experiment was to meet their production deliverables, right? So it wasn't full freedom. Mm -hmm. It was, you're still expected to meet your production deliverables over the course of this year. But we're going to give you time and a budget and let you experiment on how to do that differently. It was only, I'm sure, because that meet your deliverable commitments was part of the ground rules that they were allowed to play with the other pieces of how they got work done. In the people who talk about antifragility, and Nicole Tazim-Taleb is quoted in here at some point, and I I recognize the quote and I marked it, but I'm not going to go and pull it up now because I don't know that it's particularly relevant. But in the framework of antifragility, they talk about two important things. This gets to the principle of paradox and both and uh, instead of either or in terms of where you're playing with trade-offs. It's important to avoid catastrophic failure. And it's also important to be open to opportunity. Quite often when we're standardizing and sort of in that bureaucratic space, or if we're thinking about risk, we double down on avoiding failure rather than avoiding catastrophic failure. And actually experimentation requires willingness to have not all of the experiments play out to actually go okay we're going to try this and we're going to try this and we're going to try this and we're going to try this we're safe to fail on all of those because we've got this other thing in place that is going to protect us from catastrophic failure and that that balancing of we're protecting from the really big risks and we're taking on risks in other areas to be able to take advantage of other opportunities. That's a mindset thing that's hard to shift into if it's not where you've come from sometimes, right? It's so easy to be like, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm also reckless Mm -hmm. or I'm afraid of everything, (laughs) but nobody will ever call me irresponsible.
2: Yeah. I, I like the distinction between failure and catastrophic failure. I know in other episodes, we've had discussions around, know what your personal level of tolerance for failure is and maybe what your organizational tolerance for it is, is as well. And it's important to be honest about that, you know, yeah. and, and not walk around saying stuff like fail fast. If re- if the reality is that, you know, your organization is the kind of place where you can't have one bad program or, or one, that one not so highly rated launch, you know, if you, if you can't even tolerate that level of failure, then it's not really a fail fast kind of place it's it's a never fail ever kind of place and 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 you got to get honest about that stuff otherwise you really can't begin to put these principles in place
1: yeah it's that idea of those values on the wall and mm-hmm. what does that mean here that you could put two companies side by side that have some similar values in terms of what they say on their website in terms of their values but that idea of What does that mean here is a really important second step, because like you said, it can be really easy to adapt those buzzwords, but unless the organization goes past that one sentence value and says, this is how it shows up here, you're not actually creating a principle that everyone can function by and get behind.
2: Yeah, well, what this requires is not only the the self-awareness of of an organization, but the willingness to sit with messy stuff and and sometimes ugly stuff. I just think we don't see that enough at all at organizations or in leadership of organizations. How often have, have either of you, for me, the answer is basically never, but I don't know if either of you have ever been in organizations or, or on leadership teams where someone is willing to say, we're, we don't walk the talk here, or we talk about inclusion, but actually we're not a very inclusive environment. Let's, let's be honest, or people leave because they feel like it's toxic. Like how often do you hear people just saying it? and And that's a truth. And, you know, we want to change it. Yes. But like, Let's acknowledge it as a truth first is that is so incredibly rare. I, I certainly yeah. haven't seen it.
0: What I have seen is I have seen people say that, have it not be heard, and then leave. yeah I've yeah. seen that quite a lot. yeah there's one of the things that I think showed up in one of the books that we've been reading but it certainly has showed up on my radar quite a lot, the idea that when your passionate people leave, That's one of the signs that you should be looking for that there is a real problem when they go quiet. Yes. That's a sign that, that there's a real problem. And I think that's what I've seen is I've seen people work up the courage to say the things and have the reception, make them go, this is not my kind of place. They don't actually want to deal with the problem. True, And that's really hard to watch because it usually takes quite a lot. Out of people to say that and be disappointed with the reception. One of the things that I noticed in this book that I've seen in several other books that I've read who are looking at this kind of sort of organizational structure stuff is how often the small headquarters with really empowered localized groups that are getting sort of the minimum level of support from headquarters on the PL budget talent acquisition kind of level of stuff. And headquarters is doing training and how to run an organization that functions this way and holding the legal backbone. So how often headquarters is actually focused on avoiding catastrophic failure and then distributing power and money and control over resources for local customization in branches or regional areas. we saw that in one of the case studies in this the company wasn't named but it was described and I, I found that that model seems to show up quite a lot in the the case studies of organizational theorists who are looking in this space
2: yeah the the decentralization model and you know I think, probably what can feel scary about that is that it is as we alluded to earlier it is a giving up of control it is a giving up of power and what what one would hope is that organizations see it as giving up power and control for this larger purpose for this yeah. you know long term end like it's a means to an end but it, not everybody sees it that way and and i think there is a fear of chaos there's a fear of well this This then will become chaotic or, uh, you know, any number of justifications, right? I mean, our our culture will get diluted or, you know, we won't all be on the same page, whatever. The reality
0: is that culture will shift and we won't all be on the same page. And the reason for culture shifting and not being all on the same page is to take advantage of
2: opportunities
0: that come from being able to respond in the moment to this client's needs, and to this geographic region's needs or to this particular population's needs. And that's actually the right. That's benefit. the point. That's yeah. the point. <laughs> One of the things I loved about this is that there was a, a place where he redefined leadership as a redefining leader, as someone who catalyzes positive change mm-hmm. and that is, going from I'm the driver of change to I'm the catalyzer of change, it's tough on your ego because
1: it means that the change is actually being done by other people. In that same section, the idea of a leader being about increasing the sense of power among those who are being led was also a shift that I really liked. And it comes down to this empowerment that we keep talking about the idea of centralization and decentralization from an individual point of view. Like what happens if everything isn't centralized around me and I'm not the one who's making all these decisions. And then that idea of what it actually does for people to feel empowered by their leader to say, the leader is the one who catalyzes the change I'm the one then that gets to actually put it into practice and gets to do the experiments and be the decision maker within my area, because I'm considered the expert and the leaders of the organization trust the experts to make those decisions.
0: Yeah. The thing that I really like about the catalyzed language is it counters a problem I've been seeing in the servant leadership language. Servant leadership is such a hot buzzword these days. There's certainly a sense in certain areas where if you don't see yourself as a a servant leader, you can't possibly see yourself as an effective or good leader. And what I see over and over again in conversations about servant leadership is people standing on the rescuer space of the drama triangle <laughs> the I'm going to give you all the power I'm going to take care of you so you make sure like, so that you have all the power that you need to do the thing which is a power play because it says I have the power that I'm giving to you and it's the rescuer place and it ends up putting you in the persecutor place because it's like now you go and take that power and do your thing but it's not stated that way. And the catalyst, a catalyst isn't part of the chemical reaction. A catalyst is just the environment that makes the chemical reaction possible. It's the other things that do the work. It makes it much more of sort of situational humility and a shift of locus of control and a very generous space, but also one where If you notice that you step into a situation and then the other people become more effective, if you're paying attention and looking for that sort of sense of things change around me because I get into the space, you start seeing it if you're good at it. Like if you're actually good at being a catalyst you see, I remember at one point I was doing one of these exercises where you go and you ask the people that have known you for a long time, how they think about you and like what they think makes you special to try and, you know, it was a marketing thing, right? A personal branding kind of exercise. And somebody who's known me since I was in college is like, just walk into spaces and things go better. <laughs> and I was like, that's not very useful at the time, but it's because he'd recognized a catalyst function that I do. Like I, I don't do the, that. Yeah. I, I love that. I, and what
2: that made me think about was earlier, we were talking about the costs of the bureaucracy and how the costs are, there's a delayed effect in realizing them because they, they come later. And what the sense I'm getting here is that the, the benefits of uh, not being a bureaucracy, the benefits of a humanocracy are also somewhat delayed and also hard to describe, actually, right? So when you talk about a catalyst, and saying this, this is what's going to be great about this, this is what you get to unlock or in others and all that, right? Like, it's really hard to articulate. And also, you don't see it right away, right? You see it down the line. So both the costs and the benefits are attenuated. Because of that, it can be really hard also for people to see what can be so powerful about this because they don't get that immediate gratification of saying, this is the exact specific thing I did. This, yes. is, this is cause and effect and I can point to it and there it is. It's not that. It is environmental and it is long-term.
0: Yeah. And I work in spaces where people talk all the time about complexity versus complicated situations. And complexity is the one where cause and effect is hard to pull apart. And you only see it in retrospect. And knowledge work is complicated. And this conversation happens all of the time. And then they want to see cause and effect for action and impact. The conversation has just sort of jumped ship. When you make that shift to, we need to measure it so precisely on the things that are easy to track. There's actually an act of stepping back and looking and seeing the patterns and six months later, a year later, seeing the impact. It's so hard to feel like you have the freedom to do that. For lack of a better phrase, in corporate language, we call it trust and accountability. But really, it's a leap of faith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we've touched on most of the things in the book, and we've been talking about it for quite a while. I hope our listeners are getting a sense that although we haven't sort of layered into the details and we haven't covered all of the principles and we haven't told all the stories, this book offers hope and tools for thinking about things that you could do as a leader and as someone who structures organizations. Both of you said, and I don't think I explicitly said at the beginning of this call, I liked this book. We liked this book. I hope that people will take that from it. All right. Well then let's do Thinkaways.
2: One of the anecdotes that is shared in this book, in the form of a case study, is on United Airlines. And they talk about the infamous 2017 incident of a passenger being dragged off the plane that went viral. And, and I think most people have heard of it. My think away has to do with the aftermath of that, in which United Airlines uh, reportedly said, you know, we didn't have the, the training infrastructure in place to have our employees really. Act with common sense, and I think the book mentions well. You shouldn't have to have training and infrastructure in place to act with common sense, which is what gets me to my think away. uh, Which is that a lot of these principles that we outline in this book really, really are common sense in the sense that they are a return to our just basic humanity, and they they shouldn't necessarily require this you know massive training you know be this way because it's important to be this way. It is actually less of a learning. That organizations have to do although there's some learning and much more of an unlearning of, of what we have been doing and a, and a return to just being human people and treating each other like human people that shouldn't have to be so so drilled in yeah. the reason that was such a powerful think away for me is that so much of what we talk about in these books I think to some listeners may seem like common sense and that's because it is a often a, a return to, to behavior that we might otherwise naturally show but that gets trained out of us by the way that we're raised, by our life experiences, by corporate tradition and things like that. That was a big one for me is that if we just, we went back to our core humanity, not all problems would be solved, right? But the unlearning would just be a little easier.
1: So I think I'm going to pick up on some of the things we were talking about, the different way of looking at leadership. There was one part that really struck me, which was Talking about helping people gain competence in leadership tasks that really matter. And what they listed as the leadership tasks that really matter are spotting opportunities, energizing colleagues, challenging vested interests, reimagining business models, and nurturing others. So it's a long list there. My think away for individuals that are listening to this is to look at that list and see where do you already have some strengths that you can continue to build on? And then which one of these comes as a brand new idea for you? And where would you start to build that competence for yourself?
0: I'm going to do something a little different with my think away today. One of the things that I talked about in the conversation is how the cost of the current situation, if we don't look at it clearly, it can stop us from being motivated to make change. One of the things that happens when we look at the cost of something that is hard to change is if we see how hard it is to change and see how much it's going to cost to change, we can feel overwhelmed and feel like we don't know where to get started. When coaching individual clients, part of the way of combating that, one of the tools that, that as coaches we use is to ask the question, what would be different if we'd solved this problem? let go of the how are we going to solve this problem and just think about what would be different if we had already solved this problem. We'll worry about how later. And the book gives a lot of how and some ideas and the principles. So my think away is what would be different if organizations in general were as amazing as the people inside them? What would be possible if we were really good at this and we had just done it
2: That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really
0: helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates.
1: Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com.
2: Leadership Arts Review is a Four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.